0: There was a multitude of people that gathered near Jesus that day in Capernaum. Their hearts were so full of questions. Now they were not all women, but they had a lot of the same dreams that you and I have. They pressed so close that he made his way up a steep mountain. And then he began that beautiful sermon. Now let's just imagine that you and I are at the foot of that mountain. And we can see him standing there looking down in our direction. If we can imagine that, would you allow me to speak to him in our behalf? Lord, we would love to excel for you. I think this says it. We want to shine. We just want our lives to be so abundantly blessed while we're on this earth. I'll just be honest, Lord, we want to be happy. We want to be successful. We want our lives to just be filled with accomplishments for you. I would even like to be dynamic in my in my approach and I'd like to be effective. And yet, Lord, I want to be all of those things that your word suggests that a woman should be. Now, Lord, how do we blend it? As my daughters would say, how do we get it all together? And it seems like I can hear him answer ever so gently. Ima, I knew you would need to know about that, and the message is the same as it was 2,000 years ago. Blessed are the meek. Oh, now, Lord, I don't think I explained what I meant. I'm wanting to be dynamic. Meek? I don't want to be a mousy little lady with no personality, a weak little creature. And then he would probably say, Oh, I know, Ima. The enemy of your soul has distorted the true meaning of meekness. But all of my teaching and the teaching of my followers carefully explain what meek means if you care enough to learn, and you'd be wise to learn, for the meek shall inherit the earth. Inherit the earth, Lord? Oh, I don't mean that I'll divide it in acreage among you. I mean that on this earth, the meek will have the richest, fullest, happiest form of life. Well, Lord, that's just exactly what we want. So if you don't mind, we'll just find out what the word of meek really means. Shall we look in Webster's Big Reference Dictionary for his definition? He says it's gentle and kind and pleasant and calm and patient and tolerant and mild and does not complain or does not lose control and does not create a disturbance and refuses to be provoked. And is not inclined to anger. I was surprised too, Sister Freeman, at all that he had to say. Tender-hearted, a good countenance. Webster, you must be a direct descendant of Paul, because these words use mean exactly the same words as Paul used in Galatians when he described a victorious Christian: gentleness and goodness long-suffering and temperance, love and joy and peace and faith and all of these are as the, same, as the same as one with meekness. So according to Paul and Webster, meekness is possessing a beautiful character. It's acting in good taste. It's having good manners. Meekness is etiquette. It's like attending the finest finishing school of the spirit. I have a friend in Houston who teaches an executive etiquette course to some of the most prominent people in Houston, and she told me the original meaning of the word etiquette. It's a word derived from a French word that originally meant a ticket to the court of the king. That ticket was proof that that person had been trained as a gentleman or a lady and was eligible to be ushered into the throne room of the king. Well, we must be on the right track, for it's our King's presence that we are striving for. You know, in Paul's teaching concerning meekness, the whole attitude is our reaction to others. And according to him, that determines our relationship with God. Paul tells us that meek means to be thoughtful and to be considerate of others and be willing to overlook the inconsiderations of others. It tells us to be very careful not to hurt and never, to demand justice. Paul tells us that the meek do not insist on having the best for themselves, but they prefer their brother. And Paul warns us that the meek should never be contentious or harsh and never be severe in their remarks. Well, Paul, we simply call that being rude. So, Paul, you were suggesting, just as Webster did, that meekness means to be courteous. We know courteous means court-like manners. Here we are in the court of the king again. But Paul, you just told us to take the lower place, to not uh, expect anything for ourselves. Now, how could this seemingly insignificant, unassertive person ever command the attention of the king? All I know is the king said that his eye is on the sparrow. And since he mentioned sparrows, let's talk about that a minute. I love stories of sparrows and butterflies and soil and flowers and animals. They give us beautiful insight. We'll lay our human reasoning aside and look at nature. When you look out your window at home, do you ever see an eagle? The sky should be full of eagles for they are large and strong and they fly higher and faster than all other birds for they have powerful wings and sharp visions. And they are bold enough... To flirt with danger by flying right into a tornado but do you know i have never seen an eagle flying through the sky oh i've seen a lot of sparrows my yard is full of sparrows every morning it shouldn't be what chance did those defenseless little creatures have against the powerful eagle and think of the lion the king of beasts They had a far better chance of survival than the little lamb. Look how powerful the lion is, how feared and ferocious. They should rule on every hillside. And yet, the encyclopedia tells us that for every lion in existence, there are two million baby lambs. Well, nature certainly proves the fact the meek do inherit this earth. Paul tells us the meek person is patient, not easily provoked, not easily offended, and does not harbor resentment. Jesus once told the story about resentment in the heart of what I guess we would consider a really established church member. It was the older brother of the prodigal son. Now when the prodigal son finally returned home, his old rags were burned in the staple yard, the best robe was put upon him, and the fatted calf was killed, the music was playing, it was time for a celebration, and the family and friends began to gather around the table. Come on, older brother, no, we don't need him. He doesn't deserve all of that. Oh, that's so sad, dear brother, because your chair is empty and your place was right next to the father, the second seat of honor. It should have been the happiest day of your life and you missed that banquet, sulking in resentment. I wonder if you lost your inheritance too. You were right, Paul. It certainly is not to our advantage to harbor bitterness and resentment. For when resentment is allowed to smolder in the heart, it ignites into anger, and the meek woman never displays anger, for she has a gentle temper. When I was younger, I used to laughingly say, I guess I just have my grandfather's Irish temper. Paul wouldn't think that was funny because he teaches that the meek refrain from anger and the temple must be controlled by the grace of God. And that kind of meekness is very complimentary to a woman because anger shows on our face like a flashing, glaring, neon sign. And really, the expression we wear on our face is far more important than the clothes we wear on our back. Did you ever say to your children when they were angry and pouting, Honey, I sure hope your face doesn't freeze like that? (laughs) Well, you know, anger really is unflattering to the face of any age. Cain, you were the first one to show us the ugliness of anger. When the Lord rebuked you for your unacceptable offering, it didn't have to be such a big problem. Why did you turn with such resentment? You could have simply brought the right offering. Then you too would have been blessed. But no, you turned your back and pouted and took all your anger out on your brother, so much so that you murdered him. And didn't Paul tell us that whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer? Cain, you let anger bring so many problems into your life because when anger solidifies, it becomes hatred, and that's the most serious thing that can happen to a human heart because no heart is big enough to hold hate and happiness. And remember, Jesus said, blessed or happy are the meek. According to Paul, it is utterly impossible to possess meekness without a forgiving spirit. Since the meek receive injuries and hurts just like everyone else, what happens? They forgive not once, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And this takes the highest, most beautiful form of character, the kind Jesus had when he reviled and yet he was, re- when he was reviled, and yet he reviled not again. It's the kind that doesn't fight back, but looks the enemy in the face with quiet eyes and soft words and takes the weapon right out of their hands. Oh, this would be a wonderful time for me to tell you a story about how I once meekly forgave someone who hurt me so deeply, but I couldn't think of a story like that. I can tell you many times when I was forgiven, Let me mention just one. It was many years ago when my two girls were entering their teens, and I had a rowdy little boy to watch after. We'd been in revival for weeks, and I had people to visit. I had a bus route. I had a Sunday school class. Everything was just settling down on me, and I made a terrible mistake. I was leaning on my understanding and my strength, and it was not sufficient. So I found myself very frustrated, then irritable, and then complaining to guess who? My husband, of course, and then he was called out of town, not just out of town, overseas. And back in those days, it was like going to another world, and my frustrations intensified. You're leaving everything with me alone? A little powder puff, Sister Freeman, that had no mercy and no meekness. And my poor husband had to leave me knowing how I was feeling. Now, the next day, I received a letter. I have every note that he has ever written to me, but I have four letters that I keep under lock and key. They're like timeless messages. The Lord didn't tell me directly that message as Sister Pasley, but it was as if he said, Come here, James Kilgore, I want to dictate a letter to you for Ima. She's not doing too well. (laughs) This was one of those letters the next day when I read that letter. I still cannot cry. I still cannot read that letter without crying. He began by saying how much he loved me and missed me and, oh, a lot of beautiful sentimental things. And Then I know he had to search uh, uh, diligently, and it was difficult to do, but he managed to think of some compliments to pay me and, and make me feel ever so good. He said a lot more than I deserved, I can assure you. And then these are his exact words, as if he knew that many years later I would be teaching on this very subject. He said, Ima, I ask you humbly to forgive me for being inconsiderate. We just must be a team pulling together at all times. Ima, there are some qualities in you that are good, but they are not being put to use. Let's be completely dedicated to the work of God. That's all it takes to make me the happiest man on earth. Well, needless to say... My loving husband completely disarmed me. He came to me in meekness and forgiveness, but oh, what a powerful message he gave me. All I could remember was, there are qualities in you that are good, but you have not put them to use. And believe me, I was not in the frame of mind for a rebuke, but that meekness brought me such a beautiful message. He forgave me before I could even ask. I can't tell you how many times I have drawn from that experience and learned over and over the beautiful healing power of forgiveness and meekness. When I look over this audience, I see so many great women who are beautiful examples of meekness. All of us were not born with that quality. How do we get meekness in our lives, Lord? How can it be? We certainly can't acquire it from this world system. Modern theory says look out for number one and selfishness has no place in the heart of the meek person. For you see, the selfishness cannot inherit this earth. The earth possesses them. They've been made slaves to this world, and slaves do not have an inheritance. How do we learn it, Lord? And he simply says, learn of me, I am meek. (laughs) Now, Jesus is the ultimate of all good qualities. He could have said, learn of me, I am strong. Learn of me, I am powerful. Learn of me, I am wise. He said, learn of me, I am meek. Evidently, he put a high premium on meekness. He must have considered it his most outstanding virtue. He himself called it to our attention. And you'll notice in that same passage of scripture, he said, come unto me and learn of me. Come near to my presence and learn. Because he knew that our human spirits could never attain meekness without a learning process in his presence. I read in the Reader's Digest once that when an elephant becomes distressed and then angry, it stops everything in sight except a baby lamb. The minute it comes into the presence of a little lamb, there is an immediate calming effect and it settles down. And so it is when we come into the presence of the Lamb of God. There is a peace and there is a calmness that is so conducive to learning the lessons of the heart. You know, our heart is like a fine porcelain vase, so fragile. And in that vase we gather gentleness, one drop at a time. I'm reminded of the elder saint in our church who once was very wrongfully mistreated and did not answer one word. I said, why didn't you stand up for your rights? Well, she said, Ima, to tell you the truth, I didn't want to lose in five minutes the little bit of gentleness I had gathered over 22 years. Oh, Lord, let me add a little bit every day and not lose it, but continue to add that meekness. For some of us, it takes a long time. My friend Moses, when we first met him, oh, he was full of strong convictions, but so quick-tempered he slew an Egyptian, and then he went into the presence of God, and for 40 years he learned the ways of God, and when he came forth, he was the gentlest of all men. He was kind and full of self-control, and didn't the Lord say he was the meekest of all men? Meek, but not weak, he was a lawgiver of the highest order. He was the builder of a nation, a shepherd who said of his people, Lord, if you blot their name out, blot mine too. Yes, he was a supreme example of meekness, the kind of meekness that is strong. You know, it's amazing to me that this priceless commodity called meekness is so fragile, and yet it's so strong. Now, when we were discussing the definition of meekness, I should have mentioned that the Greek word for meek meant a wild animal tamed and trained broken to a bridle. A wild animal tamed and trained and broken to a bridle. That's the reason animal stories apply so well. It's like a wild horse that is broken and trained and a bridle is put on him and he can plow a field. That's the reason my husband said we we must be a team pulling together. And you remember that when Jesus said, come unto me, learn of me, I am meek, he also said, take my yoke. Oh, a yoke, oh, Lord, that's so uncomfortable. That's difficult to manage. That's such a burden. No, no, he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, how can a burden be light? Just try it. Just submit yourself to the yoke of the Lord and let your human spirit be channeled into meekness. And then you'll see the quiet control and usefulness in the hands of God. Such as the force of gravity, it doesn't make a sound, but, oh, the control, it holds us all to this earth. You know, when Jesus set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem, he knew they were plotting his death. Yet he dared the fury of his enemies. He rode the donkey into that little city without one weapon of protection. But resolutely and meekly, He submitted himself to the adversary, and he triumphed without one touch of violence. The Caesars are all gone today with their violent exhibitions and their arrogance and power, but the followers of Jesus, the meek ones, still abound. And now in conclusion, surely you knew, surely you knew that I could not talk about this subject without mentioning Mom Kilgore. When I think of meekness, I have to think of Mom. Probably you've heard me tell the story of the time she and Dad went to a little town to start a church. They were not welcome there, and the principal sent word, I will have no holy rollers in my school. But Mom took her children to school, and the little boy, oldest child, R.G., who was only eight, was severely beaten by that principal the next day with a big switch, and he was sent home with bloody stripes across his back. Mom just poured on the soothing oil and prayed for him. Now, in that little town, the townspeople had a custom together in the general store to lie, laugh and chat in the afternoons. Mom and Dad had a custom, too. With their three children, they walked down just in front of the general store, and all of them knelt together to pray for a revival in that town. When Mom finished her prayer and raised up her eyes, she was looking directly into the eyes of that principal. She said, I felt no hate, Ima. I felt compassion. I'm sure there must have been meekness because you probably remember the end of that story. Six years later, when revival came to that little town, that principal was one of the first to receive the Holy Ghost. You know, Mom, you were never privileged to attend school one day in your your life, but you were certainly an honor graduate of the finishing school of the Spirit. Oh, you learned so well the lessons of the teacher and took on his characteristics so gentle and patient. And forgiving and caring never boisterous but always in quiet quiet control mom you had a ministry all your own it was an inconspicuous ministry but so impressive was it that people around this country still remember you to this day you worked quietly beside dad to establish churches and precious christians learned from your example and passed on those lessons on to the third and fourth generation the spirit and beauty of meekness mom you never owned any acreage not even the tiniest little portion of this land but you certainly prove beyond any doubt when you, with your life being filled so with beautiful and rich experience that blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth amen, amen.
1: unto me
2: I don't think I've ever got up to speak that I had a better illustration of what I want to say. Twenty-six years ago, there was a rather young, I thought, very attractive, everything I always wanted to be and wasn't. petite and dainty lady talked to me, and she said she'd been carrying something in her heart for a long, long time. She said, I've got to talk to somebody. She said, I know God is going to make a wonderful minister out of my husband, and God is going to use him tremendously. But I can't play a musical instrument. I haven't got a voice to sing. I don't feel like that I'm a fit companion to my husband because I'm not going to be able to help him in his ministry. I told that precious young lady that the most important thing for her to do was to be faithful and to support her husband. I remember assuring her, she may have forgotten, but I haven't. I remember assuring her that God has something for every one of us to do. And he is the one that will enable us to do what needs to be done. We have such distorted senses of value. We think if it's not playing and singing, well, then it's not the work of God. We think we've got to get up front and be seen, or we have some things laid out in our minds. But, you know, he said that his ways are higher above our ways than the heavens is above the earth. The young lady I talked to you, talked about, that I talked to that day was the lady that just finished speaking to you. And when I see what God has made of her, such a beautiful Christian lady, she doesn't sing specials, she doesn't play a musical instrument, but she is doing the work of God. And in sharing God's word, she has enriched. So many lives in the large wonderful church that her husband pastors and it thrills me to see her stand to face a group like you because I know she has something to tell you. As I look into your faces this afternoon, the thing that strikes me is all of these unfulfilled dreams and desires. There are so many of you that have said oh, I want to do something for God. Some of you know exactly what you'd like to do, but you've never been able to get it together. You've never been able to get going, get lost. And just let me ask this question. How many of you fall in that category? You want so much to do something for God, but you've never found your place. You've never found your place. There hasn't been any doors open to you. No trumpets blaring or no lights flashing. And nothing has happened. And you just go on day after day, week after week, in your little rut and wonder how to get out. How can I be used of God? Let me reassure you that He does have a blueprint of your life, a pattern, and a design. But the best thing you can do is to leave the choice of what and when and where and how, everything up to him. It's easy to abort the plan of God when he's put you in a training situation that's unpleasant and uncomfortable and you don't like it. And, uh, oh God, get me out of here, you think in your heart, but he's getting you ready for what he meant for you to do and you want to fly the coop because that's what life is. I told a group earlier today that uh, some of us stay a long time in the third grade because we don't learn the lesson. Every situation you face is a lesson to prepare you for what God wants to do with you. And uh, I've never forgotten a little illustration that I heard or read somewhere of a beautiful cathedral that was being built in England And a man was there to inspect, and he found a fellow way up in the rafters or whatever. I don't even know the parts of a building to call it. But he was up there with a chisel, uh, several chisels, and he was working and carving a figure. And the man said to him, but sir, surely you realize that this will never be seen. And why are you taking such pains? Why do you think it must be perfect? He watched the man for a few minutes with his painstaking labor. He said, oh, there's someone who sees. There's an all-seeing eye that knows that what I have done is here. I've got to do my best for him. You see, we're going to get some surprises on the day when God hands out the rewards. There's going to be people we've looked at and thought, oh, they're going to get it. Oh, my, they're going to be rewarded. I can imagine all the Lord's going to say to them. You may be surprised when he calls up some little insignificant widow who in the background and in obscurity has been faithful because the key is faithfulness. My mother-in-law was walking down a country road one day and met a gypsy, and she said, I'll tell you, fortune for 50 cents. My mother-in-law said, that isn't necessary. I know my fortune already. She said, oh, you you tell fortunes? She said, no, but I've got a book that tells fortunes. And I read in that book where it said, if I'll be faithful unto death, he's going to give me a crown of life. (laughs) Hallelujah. And if you don't have a place in the forefront be faithful wherever God has put you and a small job faithfully done leads to a bigger job the mistake we make we begin to feel sorry for ourselves and did you know that self-pity is one of the most dangerous things loose in our world today my daughter's just done a research on this told me today that Just in a few hours after a few thoughts of self-pity. Well, I can't do anything and I can't be useful and there's nothing for me to do. and There's no place for me and there's no avenue of service for me. That's all self-pity. And just a few hours later, the first seeds of depression begins to thrive in your personality. And depression leads people to suicide, to total mental incapacity to drugs that are habit-forming and will destroy your mind. How could you feel sorry for yourself because you're not what you want to be and can't be and haven't been and you think there's no hope of being? You don't know what God will make out of you if you'll just give him a chance. If you'll only give him an opportunity, he will make something beautiful of your life. One of the most fulfilled persons that I have known in my time of ministry, which God sparing me to may, will be 45 years I met in Walnut Hill, Louisiana. One day I said to Sister Ida Wisby, Sister Ida, you're always happy. You're always bubbling over. You are the picture of a fulfilled person. Have you found what God wants you to do? She said, Yep, I sure have. Well, I wish you'd tell me what it is, Sister Ida. I'd never seen her do anything besides sit on the second front seat from the front camp meetings and just beam and shine and shout, Amen. And she said, I found out a long time ago what my ministry is and I do it and I give it everything I've got. She said, my ministry is feeding the preachers. It's a ministry. That loving hospitality and that personal interest. I happen to know of several young preachers that her bubbling effort, what is that word? ever you know i've been talking another language up until day before yesterday and so i'm getting tangled up on that language and this one but it just she revived and inspired and re-inspired and encouraged by her love and her willingness to serve and what it's all about is there's going to come a day when we're going to stand before that one And he's either going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, or he's going to say, go away, depart, thou wicked and slothful servant. So you may have been stumbling over your ministry. You may have been stumbling over the will of God for years and saying, that's not what I want, I want something else. The first step to find your place in God's kingdom is to say, here I am. That's the way my ministry started. I remember so well in the first church that we pastored that my husband had had a meeting with the church board and they called me in. And one of the brothers, Sunday school superintendent, started humming and hawing. And he said, now, Sister Freeman, uh, we believe that you're willing to be of service in God's cause. And there's something that desperately needs doing around here. I was so in hopes they was going to give me the young people's class. He said, we don't have anybody to take the nursery class, you know, those little kids. He said, would you mind? Well, to be honest, there was a moment of minding, Uh, let me say more like a second. And then I thought, well, I told the Lord I'd do anything that I was asked to do. And I haven't found anything yet that was too much trouble to do for him. He has done so much for me that there's no way that I can ever repay him for all the love and the mercy and the kindness and the grace that he's bestowed on me. So anyway, anything that I can do. And I said, now, Lord, that's taken care of. Now, we didn't have a nice nursery like you see today. That meant just taking those few, squally, snotty-nosed kids off somewhere where they wouldn't be in everybody's hair. And... So I gathered them up, seven of them. I well remember the number. And I said to myself that if I can make these little kids understand something about Jesus, then I'll be able to make anybody understand. And I went to work on those kids and cried the day that they decided there was something else for me to do. You see, if, if you consider anything in God's service too low for you and beneath your dignity, you'll never find what he wants you to do. You're going to have to surrender yourself completely to him and whatever he says. And he has asked me to do some things that I surely did not want to do. But I found that in bending my will to his will and putting my don't want to on the altar, I have found such a fulfillment and such a joy, and such a wonderful presence of God. My life has been enriched by the things that I didn't want to do. So if you'll start out by doing some of the things you don't want to do, some of the things you've been stumbling over and avoiding, and you've become suddenly deaf when the call comes forth. (laughs) I'm just amazed at how we can become deaf at will when there's a call for volunteers to do some kind of work. You want to find the will of God, volunteer for everything that they ask for. Whatever it is. And just give yourself completely to Him without reserve. You know, few of us have ever done it. And it's something that has to be repeated every once in a while. There's ever so often that I have to be reminded Oh I gave these hands to him And some of the things That I love to do I've put on the shelf Kissed them goodbye And I probably won't ever Pick them up again And some of the things That i am scared to death of i went forward Step by step in Jesus name If I understand What this service is about This afternoon It's The ministry that God has for every one of us. And you know ministries change too. The Lord may start you out in one direction and then all of a sudden he turns you around and sends you another direction. But after all, he's the master. And so he has the right. I remember how I cried in Africa when my husband said, I will no longer pastor a church. He happened to be pastoring six at that time. And I was enjoying being the preacher's wife. I, You know, I've been a missionary quite a while and it was so nice to be a preacher's wife again. And I had to, you know, put on my brakes, back up and take a deep breath and start another direction. And I've done it countless times. And every time there's been, it hasn't been easy. Every time it's been hard. I can never tell you how hard it was for me to ever start to commence to begin to try to be a woman preacher. I'm so scatterbrained, I don't really think I've done very much, but to get, make that initial consecration was such a job. And I remember laying on the floor and crying, saying, Oh God, I'll clean the church. I'll do anything. Lord, I'll just, you tell, I'll cut the grass. I don't care what. Lord, just, just do anything, Lord. And he said, Preach. It was just like he was a broken record stuck on one word. But when I finally surrendered to the will of God, and it was a long time after surrender before anything happened. Some of you have surrendered a long time ago. Okay, now, Lord, I've surrendered. What's next? Just take it easy. You're going to school. (laughs) You're learning. You're learning. And when the time comes, I was so impressed with something Sister Tenny said this afternoon in another class. She told about the time that she had babies, her husband was away from home a lot, and there, there was a vacuum in her life, but she used it. Filled notebooks with lessons that she's using today, got thoughts and experiences and out of the word that she could relate her life to in the lives of others. And what a blessing she is. She is a woman with the call of God upon her for a very special work. God showed this to me 1976 when we stood on a plane, both of us on our way to Jerusalem. God showed me that he was going to use her as a special servant in this end time. And she said, I don't know how that could ever happen. And she probably doesn't yet know how it happened. But you see, sometimes between the call and and the launching is a long, long time. A man talked to me in Africa and told me that God had told him he would do a certain thing when he was a boy. And he said, now I'm a gray-haired man, gray-haired man, and I'm doing it now. Finally, God got around to opening the doors. But he's never too late. Now, there's been quite a few times that I thought he was. In fact, I went down on my knees and I said a couple of times, said, God, if you still got my address, do you even know where I live? But he let me know that he not only knows, but he put me where I was. Be sweet and keep rejoicing. I mentioned briefly last night that we have just come through a series of storms in, in our work in Africa. We have had the most tremendous revival. We have churches that have averaged baptizing 10 people a week, every week, week after week, month after month, year after year. We have one district that has doubled every year. God has moved in tremendous ways. And as the Lord reminded me sweetly while I was grieving over some things that were happening, he said, you didn't think the devil would take this laying down, did you? But I have, I just can't sit down without telling you my secret. Um, My birthday coming up, I'll be 68. I'm not ashamed of my age because I lived every year of it. And most of it, I've been running. My mother-in-law said about me that if I was sick in bed for a week and finally got able to get up and wanted to drink a water, I'd run to go get it. I I, I, I do run. I, I I don't know how to operate otherwise. But in all of that running, and all of that going, and all of that living, and all of the pressures, and all of the end time pressures, even of governments and nations. Well, I'll just tell you one thing that happened. A government in a country in Africa demanded that we disband our whole church, write a new constitution, ha- and start all over again. And we had more than 4,000 members. And that wasn't easy. It was an extreme waste of money to get everybody in and get this all done. And... I I didn't whine, but I said, God, I sure don't see the need of all of this. But it ended up we've never been stronger in that country before than we are now. So you see, he still knows what he's doing. But to tide you over those rough moments, if you can learn to praise him. I just can't sit down without telling you this. And a lot of people get hung up on the verse that my mother taught me from the time... She got into Pentecost. In everything give thanks. And it's, it's my fault that I took it to me. In everything give thanks. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And that's the way I did it for many years. But at the time of crisis, when my husband's life hung by a thread, when we had lost a missionary, and I've never faced such a upheaval and torment. God gave me a verse that said, Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always for all things." And victory came when I praised God. I had just got a message. I couldn't even go to my husband. I just got a message that he'd been cut to and when I got to that place, finally, after God gave me these two scriptures, Ephesians five twenty, giving thanks always for all things. Well, you know, all things and for all things, that sure covers it all. And Hebrews 13 and 15 says, By Him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praises to God continually, That is the fruit of your lips, giving thanks to his name. In case you misunderstand, I mean, he spelled it out. And then I just love those two verses over there in Psalms. One of the biggest weaknesses I have is can't remember numbers. Oh, is it 107? I don't know, but it says, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness to the children of men. And for his wonderful works. And, but the next verse is the one. And let them sacrifice their sacrifices of thanksgiving. And let them sacrifice. You see, when you praise God for naughty kids and dirty dishes and broken window panes and flat tires and out of gas and whatever, accidents, tragedies trauma included all and you offer a sacrifice of praise to god you'll find out what he wants you to do some of us have never learned because we've spent our whole life complaining because nobody ever calls on me to do anything learn to praise him praise him for every disappointment and every heartache i've had Plenty of both. And I found it works. And it puts that something in your heart that God can use and then He can direct you into that place He wants you. Believe me, precious sisters, when I tell you God has the work for you, God has a place for you. He will lead you and guide you and train you, but you got to quit whining. And you've got to start praising him. Praise
1: him. Praise him. Hallelujah. <playlist> <shores> <colors> Hallelujah. Amen. Praise him. Can you praise him?